This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I, I can't even believe that uh, we got past the 2022 elections and we didn't even talk about them. So I apologize. This is a bit tardy, but I did think we need to talk about the elections, the outcome, uh, what it means for people in the sort of private wealth, uh, tax, uh, state planning arena, what the, what you should be thinking about, at least what I'm thinking about. I guess what I'm thinking about doesn't mean that's what you should be thinking about. So I thought that uh, we should talk about that today. You may recall that or may have heard, unless you were living under a rock, uh, if you're an American, that the elections sort of went two ways uh, on the federal level. And that is that the Democrats ultimately held on to control of the Senate. They've got a 51% or 50, 51 votes in the Senate out of 100, which was good for them. They don't have the power to... to uh, to break a filibuster because they don't have 60 votes, but they've got 51 votes, which means they hold that very slim majority. Uh, theoretically, that means that so long as one of Kirsten Cinema, who is no longer a Democrat, uh, and and or um, Joe Manchin go along with the Democrat majority, that they're going to be able to uh, to uh, enact any any legislation that they want through the Senate. Now, then you flip it to the other side of of uh, the Capitol building and the House of Representatives, and the Republicans control the House. Uh, and that was the outcome of the election. That that was not really in doubt. Actually, the the outcome of who was going to control the Senate wasn't necessarily in doubt. You, you'll all remember there was a runoff election in Georgia that the Democrats won, but that was to get the 51st vote. But the Democrats already controlled the Senate with the 50-50 split because of the vice presidency. And uh, Kamala Harris would always cast the deciding vote if there was an evenly split vote in the Senate. So it really didn't make a, an enormous amount of difference, notwithstanding some of the rhetoric that you might have heard in the news about the importance of, in, in the grand scheme of things, the importance of the uh, Georgia outcome. So we have a split Congress and we have a split federal government, meaning the White House is, is democratically controlled and the Congress is split. So really, Congress, unless they're able to do real bipartisan legislation, and I'll kind of talk about what I think that means, but if they're unless they're able to do real bipartisan legislation, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be getting a lot done uh, in Congress as far as new laws go. Uh, and it also might mean that if they do get bipartisan legislation done, there's I think probably a very good chance that it is not going to be vetoed uh, because presumably it's legislation that the Democratic Party agrees with because they have negotiated something with the Republicans and therefore the White House is going to be also agreeing with because under uh, normal political circumstances, uh, shall we say, the the parties and, and the different branches of government tend to work in concert and not, not at cross purposes with one another. Um, but things that both parties can agree with becomes a very short list. And major tax reform, I don't believe, is going to be on that list. Uh, I've been wrong before, but reading the tea leaves here, I don't think, at least for the next couple of years, we're going to see any sort of major uh, tax changes 
There could be things sort of on the margins. It, it does appear, and this one is, is more of a bipartisan issue, at least historically, that there may be some appetite for doing another SECURE Act, which was the act that changed the rules uh, somewhat about retirement accounts. It appears that there may be some appetite for doing that in a way that might, for example, increase the age at which a person needs to take required minimum distributions from their retirement accounts. There's some agitation out there about uh, getting an act like that done. Again, it's a bipartisan issue, um, if you would believe it, on on taxes, which ultimately that's what the the Secure Act is, is a tax act. And so I could, I, you know, I could envision a Secure Act 2.0. Uh, there will pro- there could be uh, certain so-called tax extenders, which tend to be uh, tax credits and things that that sunset and both parties oftentimes agree to extend those not always but they oftentimes agree to extend those as part of the budget process and so i would be expecting that those sorts of things are going to continue um, there's also uh, a, a another layer however to to tax rules and, and tax law and that is what comes out on the regulatory side and so my guess is that to the extent that we are seeing tax changes or, or new laws in the tax arena, we're really going to see those come about in the regulatory side, the Department of Treasury regulations. Uh, the Department of Treasury's so-called priority guidance lists, which they put out every year, it's a list of like, these are the projects we're trying to work on the most. Uh, that prior, priority guidance list is going to become very important, uh, in it, certainly for the next two years, while we're, we're in between election cycles here. And uh, that priority guidance list is probably going to get a little bit more close scrutiny uh, because that's where all the action is going to be. So a few things that are on that list that maybe are, are worth noting. Um, there's a lot on the list. Whether they'll get to all of them is sort of another question. <laughs> there's there's always something on the list that they never actually get to. They just sort of put it on there like they really, really want to get to it, but they just never have the time because something happens. You know, maybe there's a, a new uh, tax act that comes from Congress and then the IRS is scrambling or the Department of Treasury is scrambling to try to write the regulations and guidance for um, for that new tax act. Or you know, There's always some large number of reasons why they don't get to the things on the list. But uh, one of the big ones, and I, I already mentioned it, was was the SECURE Act. Now, the SECURE Act... Uh, has proposed regulations. Uh, they're not final regulations, although if if you're a retiree or, or beneficiary of a retirement account, you could, you're supposed to be able to re- rely on these proposed regulations. Um, but those need to be finalized, and the process for finalizing regulations is that they have to be put out to the public. They're, the IRS receives public comments on the regulations, with which they've received a lot of public comments about these regulations. And then the IR, and the Department of Treasury goes back, looks at all the comments, or they're supposed to consider the comments, whether they implement those comments. And suggested changes is sort of another question, but they're supposed to look at all of them and, and address all of them, uh, which they typically do in the preamble to uh, the regulations. And then they will, they will issue final regulations that are filed in the, the Federal Registry. And those final registry, uh, final regulations will include any modifications or amendments. So that the, the amendments that occur in the final regulations are not open to public comment. There's sort of a, a window of time where you get to tell the, the Department of Treasury what you think and how you think the regulation should be written, but then ultimately it's, it's up to them to decide what is in, what is out. That doesn't mean that Taxpayers are without any recourse whatsoever, but it's a very steep climb to sort of try to uh, challenge regulations at that point. So that the the 
the writers of the regulations in the federal government, they just have a lot of leeway to write the regulations in the way that they see fit. But again, they're supposed to take public comments and they're supposed to address the public comments in the final regulations that come out. So I would anticipate that we're going to see final regulations, certainly in the next two years, final regulations on the SECURE Act. And, that, and that's going to be a big, uh, a, a big chunk of where this sort of action is on the new tax law side of things. Hopefully, there are not a lot of surprises. Um, in my opinion, the proposed regulations under the SECURE Act are pretty well done. Um, I can't always say that for every regulatory project out there, but um, they're pretty well done. And so I, I'm not anticipating there's going to be significant changes um, just because I think they, they did a pretty thoughtful job on the first first draft of the proposed regulations. And so they're not going to have to be making tremendous amounts of, of changes to correct a big chunk of errors and things like that, um, which is a good thing. I think it gives us some stability. It gives us some expectation of, of what's going to be in the, the final regulations. And so it's not so much of a guessing game. Uh, on the the sort of high net worth side of things, one of the issues that's on the list that the IRS is supposed to be addressing is, is a it's sort of an issue that's a debate, I suppose. Uh, I think it's more of a debate among a small group of practitioners nationwide rather than uh, practitioners broadly. And that is this. If somebody dies and they're the grantor for income tax purposes of a trust, which means that they're treated because they retain certain powers over the trust as if they own the assets in the trust for income tax purposes, when they die, do the assets inside the trust receive a new income tax basis equal to the fair market value on the grantor's date of death? I think the, the general consensus is no, that that is not the outcome because the, the new basis rules primarily rely on assets that well, first of all, the assets have to have, have passed from the deceased person to someone else. So say the trust in this case. And if you made gifts into the trust and the trust owns the assets, just because you're the grantor during your lifetime doesn't necessarily mean that when you die, that's passing the asset to the to the trust or the trust is receiving the asset from your deceased hands and it's so, you know, so to speak, living hands. Um, and so therefore, the trust doesn't get a new income tax basis. That's pretty much, I think, the general consensus, but there are some people out there who think otherwise. Uh, and really, I mean, it'd be great if that was the outcome for that category of humans on the planet. It'd be an, a, an extra, extra, extra tax benefit. And it would really prop up uh, a, a transaction that we've talked about on the podcast in the past, a so-called sale to an intentionally defective grantor trust. So with the sale to an intentionally defective grantor trust, this grantor that I'm discussing uh, sells property, usually some property of some value, to the trust. The trust pays them a note. So now they're holding a note. Well, the, the general rule is that when they die, um, they would their estate may have to pay the capital gains tax on the balance that's due on the note. And so the theory out there swirling around is that, no, 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 when they die, they own the note, the note gets a new basis or the property gets a new basis. And therefore there's no capital gains at death, even if that note is not paid off. Uh, because generally death is not an event that causes income tax. It's not like a sale. Uh, there are some countervailing 
rules that would say, no, when you switch taxpayers, that's what accelerates the gain, and that's what then causes the estate, for example, to have to pay the capital gains tax. But during the grantor's lifetime, there is no capital gains tax on this transaction uh, with the intentionally defective grantor trust. I'm sure all of it makes perfect sense, but just trust me that that's the way it works. And um, so there's some debate on that topic. It appears that the IRS is going to address it. How they're going to address it, who knows? My guess is it's not going to be in the taxpayer favorable way. Uh, but again, I've been wrong in the past. So, uh, you know, maybe they'll surprise me, but I'm not holding my breath. So I would not encourage anybody else to start holding their breath in anticipation of the IRS coming up with taxpayer favorable rules on that particular topic. There's, um, there is another set of proposed regulations that that made the list that is supposed to be finalized, this set of proposed regulations, unlike the SECURE Act proposed regulations, I think are not very well written and really need a lot of work. Uh, And that that is the proposed regulations under Section 2801. So Section 2801 is a very strange, uh, very little uh, noticed provision in the the, the, uh, Internal Revenue Code. The, The rule under 2801 creates an inheritance tax. And it's not a gift tax or an estate tax. It is an inheritance tax. And that means it's a tax that's imposed on the inheritor of property. So here's the way it works. If if a U.S. citizen or someone who held a, gr- a green card for the, the last eight of 15 years before they gave up their green card, or that U.S. citizen gave up their citizenship, and at the time that they gave up citizenship or the screen card, assuming that the 8 out of 15-year rule was met, they met a particular averaging over the past five years of income tax liability, or had a net worth of $2 million, or they failed to report to the IRS that they were leaving the country and expatriating, then they become what's called a covered expatriate. Now, when they leave, we impose an exit tax. The exit tax is a tax that assumes that they sold all of their assets. So there's any capital gains that would have been generated from that that deemed sale, they have to pay tax on it. It's a phantom sale. It's not like they actually sold the assets. They don't actually have cash in hand from a buyer. Uh, we just pretend that they sold their assets and they got to be capital gains on it. They can exclude some around $750,000 of that. It's a number that's indexed for inflation. Um, but beyond that, they have to pay capital gains tax and, and they become what's called a covered expatriate. So let's assume they do it. They're a covered expatriate. They've left the U.S. They're very, you know, they're very happy now. They're out of, out of the purview of the IRS or so they think. If during their lifetime, or at death, they gift or they leave, like in a will or a bequest, to a U.S. resident property that's worth more than what's called the gift tax annual exclusion amount, which is $16,000. The recipient must pay this 28, $2801 inheritance tax, and it's a 40% tax on the value of the property that they've received from the covered expatriate. And it, it also applies to distributions from certain foreign trusts. And basically, the proposed regulations impose the burden on the U.S. person who's receiving the money to know whether that money is being received from a covered expatriate. And in fact, the way the proposed regulations are written, if they have no idea whether they're receiving money from a covered expatriate, they have to pretend that that person is a covered expatriate or that the person say, put money into a foreign trust, and when they receive money from the foreign trust, it is coming from a covered expatriate. So there are some very harsh, I think, um, presumptions that the U.S. recipient has to make. 
and then pay and pay this inheritance tax on. It's a very, very challenging regime. Uh, it's a very, I think, harsh result, but that is the law. How it gets implemented under these regulations then is the big question. That's why I say, like, I think that's where the action is going to be in the next couple of years. So if the IRS gets around to it in the next two years, we could see finally see final regulations. Uh, the proposed regulations are quite old at this point, but they did they did make the list of priorities uh, on the regulatory side of things. So we could see that happen in the next in the next two years. At a minimum, it would be nice to kind of finally have that box checked uh, and know what the rules are because right now things are a little bit in limbo. We you know again we know what the proposed regulations say. Uh, you know I know what parts of it to be afraid of, but I don't. We don't really have crystallized final rules uh, and final IRS forms and things to implement those rules. So if we have that, it'll make my life easier, uh, at least to know. You know, it's one thing to to agree with or to be happy about the rule, but at least you know, uh, and it's nice to at least know. But I think those sorts of things are are almost certainly going to be where we see things moving on the tax side of of the world in the next couple of years. I mean, unless there is very surprising and and newly found bipartisan agreement on issues such as taxes, which there really haven't been in the past, uh, we're not going to see major new tax legislation beyond these sort of extender type things and then and then uh, regulatory changes. Inevitably, there there will be court cases and also IRS rulings to be aware of in the next few years. I just don't see any major things happening in Congress. So the question that I get asked is, well, so what should I do? Uh, you know, clients ask me that. Sometimes professional ask, profession, other professionals will ask me that. Well, what what should I do, or, or what are you telling people to do? And I I am telling clients at this point to pretend that. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, at least the provisions that are subject to sunset, are going to sunset on uh, January 1, 2026, uh, because in order to extend those, it will take a bipartisan act of Congress at this point. Now, we'll see what happens in the 2024 elections, but it is, uh, it's not impossible, of course, for one party to control both, both uh, branches of the federal government or the two uh, lawmaking branches of the government, so to speak, but it is unlikely, and it is it, it's not something that really happens with a lot of frequency. Even though it's happened twice now in the last eight years, still that's eight years. So it is it is quite a big gap between, and it and it only really lasts for when it happens. It only lasts for like two years. So they always it always has a long cycle, and then when it happens, it doesn't it doesn't last for very long. So the chances of it happening in twenty twenty four you know, just by probability is low, but we'll see. And if in 2024, after the next round of of federal elections, one branch of the government, or both branches of the sort of lawmaking branches of the federal government are, uh, are controlled by one of the major political parties, then absolutely, we'll probably see major tax legislation of some variety, um, or at least extensions uh, if the Republicans control Congress and the White House, uh, extensions of some of the individual provisions in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. All of those individual provisions 
are set to sunset in 2026. And so some of those are pretty important, the, the pass-through entity deduction rules, um, the estate tax rules, the income tax uh, brackets, the uh, rules about deductions like miscellaneous itemized deductions. These are, these are things that are set to expire in 2026. Some of those I think will be easier to extend than others if you are thinking about, all right, what, what if in 2024 we still have a split government are they going to be able to work together on the individual side? I could, see, or the sort of small business side, I could see them maybe agreeing. So maybe the pass-through entity deduction survives because both sides can pat themselves on the back as as helping small businesses if they if they do that. I don't know if that extends to the estate tax exemption because it's at a, a very, very uh, historically high amount right now. It's $10 million base. It's roughly going to be $12.9 million per person uh, in 2023 based on inflation adjustments. And that's the one that I, I get a little concerned about for clients um, because it is one that you have to plan for early and it's planning that gets done over a long period of time. So for most clients, I'm telling them to pretend that the tax Cuts and Jobs Act estate tax exemption is going away, and we're going to revert back to a base exemption of $5 million. It'll be indexed for inflation. $5 million was the number that the Obama administration was willing to go along with. It's the number, in fact, at the time that the Republican Party was touting. Uh, it was sort of the great compromise to get some of the the tax regulation or tax legislation that the Obama administration wanted done and negotiated with with uh, Republican senators, very famously John Kyle uh, at the time, and so I could see both parties being willing to let the exemption go back to five million dollars. And if if you're a person or you're working with a client who say has to their name somewhere in the ten to fifteen million dollar range, you probably know they they have a, a high potential for an estate tax issue. And so they have to start planning now as if their exemption is the lower exemption and not the, the current higher exemption, which is going away. Um, so that's what I'm telling clients. And so we're trying to implement planning strategies that take into account the fact that there's this pretty high probability that those tax benefits are going away unless there's either bipartisan support in the federal government, which has not been the soup du jour lately, or one one party controls both branches of the the uh, lawmaking function of the federal government, which again is not something that happens with a tremendous amount of frequency. And when it happens, it usually doesn't last for very long. So you know, it all is it all remains to be seen. The outcome of the most current election again, I think, is that we're not going to see much on the the federal legislative side. Maybe Secure Act 2.0. There seems to be some bipartisan support for that, but otherwise, most of the action, at least that I'm anticipating, is going to be on the regulatory side of things, which can have a, a major impact. And it, it is important, and it is a, a huge component of the sort of tax law writing function of the federal government. So there you have it. I apologize it took so long. I guess I really in in, uh, in good uh, conscience was supposed to wait until after the Georgia runoff to have any sort of commentary about the election, but we hadn't done it yet. Uh, so this is, this is your lot on that topic. I hope uh, everybody's doing well. Wishing everybody very happy holidays and looking forward to seeing everybody after the new year. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com. 
and follow me on social media at Love and Law. I'll see you there.